Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers' Panel. Happy spring. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to other writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than a thousand writers on the show, so please check the archives to find more writers and more TV shows of interest to you. I've written a bunch of things. Uh, With my writing partner, Ben Acker, I was on the writing staffs of Supernatural, Puss in Boots, some other shows. We sold a bunch of pilots over the years as well, and we have a couple of things cooking right now, which I thought I'd be able to tell you about by now, but I can't. Um, So keep listening, and as soon as I can talk about these things, I will, because I'm very excited about them. Meantime, you can check out some comics we've written, uh, including the Last Jedi tie-in comics from Marvel called The Storms of Crate and DJ Most Wanted. We also did Deadpool v. Gambit over at Marvel, and our creator-owned Death Be Damned, uh, which is a supernatural western from Boom Studios. We co-wrote it with our pal Andrew Miller, who is, uh, he made the new Tremors pilot most recently for sci-fi. Uh, you can also listen to the live show and podcast that Acker and I wrote and produced for 10 years. It's called The Thrilling Adventure Hour, and it's available via iTunes and Nerdist. Also, check out the podcast Dead Pilot Society, which is a show I produce with Friends writer Andrew Reich. In it, we take pilots that have been bought and developed by networks but never shot, and we get these incredible casts to read them live. And pertinent to writers' panel listeners' interest, we also talk with the writers about how the process went wrong. Or sometimes didn't. Sometimes it just stopped abruptly. Anyway, that's Dead Pilot Society, and it's on the Maximum Fun Network. For now, I'd really like to hear from you. What writers haven't I had on the podcast that you'd like to hear from? What am I not asking that you want to know about? Email me at nerdistwriters at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker. Like the Writers Panel on Facebook and visit writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you like the show, please leave a review on iTunes. Uh, It's very helpful in the rankings, which is something I need to consider, especially right now as some changes are being made. What are they? Again. I can't tell you. But as soon as I can, you, dear listener, will be the first to know. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! What I'm going to do is have you introduce yourselves on the microphone so the listener can get to know your voices. Uh, Tell us, uh, in addition to the terror which is premiering when? 26th of March 26th in the US. of March on AMC. Um, in addition to the terror, where have people seen your name before on their TV or movie screens? And uh, David, let's start with you. Uh, I'm Dave Kajanik. Um, I'm one of the showrunners and the show creator of the terror, and I am uh, from the feature side of the business. So if people have seen my name before, it's been on feature films. Um, I did a film called A Bigger Splash a couple of years ago with Luca Guadagnino and did a film called True Story um, a couple of years ago with James Franco and Jonah Hill. A couple of, a couple of genre films before that I'd rather not mention. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm going to ask you about yeah, yeah, yeah. that in a second. Uh, Sue. Um, Sue Hugh. And I have worked predominantly in television. My past credits include The Killing and Under the Dome and The Whispers. And we ran, we ran the show together. Okay. Yes. yes. So you are the, the creator and showrunner and showrunners. Showrunner, yeah. Yes. Um, and the show's really good. I was telling Thanks. you, Dave, before you came in, Sue, like, it's, this was a tough adaptation, I can imagine. 
there's a lot of stuff in that book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you guys sort of dole out story in a really cool way. So I want to just start by talking about, uh, Dave, how you first got involved and how you became the guy to write the pilot and sort of start bringing this to television. Sure. I, I, the Franklin, the, the history of the Franklin Expedition is something I, I've known about for a, a long time. I used to work in, in the outdoor field, and so you, when you do that, you know certain stories like this. And when I heard Dan Simmons was writing a book that was the actual history crossed with a kind of gothic horror story, I couldn't have been more excited and got was able to get a, a, a galley copy of the book and tried to get the rights, and, and I was like a day too late. They had already gone to Universal Studios where it was meant to be a feature film. So I got myself hired to write the feature um, and got well, us... Let me stop you right sure. there because I think that's something that people want to hear about. How do, you know, you had a few features under your belt, I'm sure, at that time. Um, how do you become the guy who gets yourself hired on a thing that you really want to do? Well, I think you have to be brave enough to, to, to go in with the kind of confidence where you tell them what the project is. You know, you don't wait for them to invite you to the table. You tell them where the table is, I think. And I, you know, having studied fiction in graduate school rather than film, I feel very comfortable talking about books and taking books apart. And so I think it's one reason I've, I've gotten as many jobs adapting books mm-hmm. as I have, because I can, I can speak to it with a certain level of um, decorum and respect for the author, but also with some fearlessness, knowing you're, you, know, you have to break the bones of any book you adapt. And I think that's comforting to people that you feel comfortable doing it, um, or at least if not comfortable and then willing and, mm-hmm. and willing to do it respectfully. Um, so I talked about the book in a way that I think reassured them. And, um, but even as I was doing that, I was thinking two hours for this book is a, it's a tall challenge uh, and got sort of halfway through breaking it down and, and sort of outlining it. Uh, when Universal um, decided that it was in too much in competition with the Guillermo del Toro project they had at the time, which was a Lovecraft adaptation of At the Mountains of Madness. And so they let the rights to this go, and then suddenly it was up for grabs, and it moved around town a bit uh, in different iterations. At one point it was meant to be an ongoing series, and at another point it was going to be a shorter limited, uh, and it finally ended up at AMC. And I had sort of was able to stay you know, attached to it through a lot of those different iterations. Mm-hmm. And when AMC finally greenlit it as a 10-hour limited uh, at the time, I mean, now it's presumably the first season of a, of a longer anthology series. Um, but at the time, I was so happy to have 10 hours because I thought, well, that's just about the right amount of time. So you I didn't for this. actually set out pitching 10 hours to AMC? No, um, they, they wanted to do it initially as an ongoing series, so there was, a ver- there was a version that was five seasons long. Mm-hmm. So I've done the two-hour version and the five-season version. <laughs> and, I mean. and I have to say, at the end of the day, 10 hours... <laughs> ten hours She's for- just shaking her head. <laughs> I don't know how you would have done this in five seasons. Yeah. 10 hours ends up being kind of the perfect size for this. Mm-hmm. So when Sue came in um, and we sort of looked at one another and said, okay, does this feel like a 10-hour limited, we really both felt very confident that it was precisely the right amount of time. It does make sense. And then did you, as part of the, and I assume you pitched it to AMC, uh, and as part of that pitch process, did you have broken down what that pilot episode would be? How much did you know not knowing what the order would be? Well, well, knew a lot. I mean, it's it's the uh, sometimes when you adapt something, the the kind of the the act breaks and the episode breaks really present themselves. And obviously, um, 
getting them to the point where they're frozen in at the end of the pilot. It just it makes complete intuitive sense. It's, you know, it's, it allows you to sort of take all of the anxiety leading up to that and kind of close that story and know that you go into the second episode with a completely new set of anxieties. And, you know, it's a great thing to, to, to sort of... It's a great contract to have with the audience that you, you, will, you, you will feel both... Um, satisfied with where we end our different parts, you know what I mean? There'll be a lot of a sense of um, completion and closure and satisfaction, even as we reveal Mm -hmm. worse anxieties and worse terrors. Yeah, sure, and the way episodic TV has to do and does when it does well. Uh, And so at what point did you get involved and and why? What, What sort of brought you to this project? I mean, this must have been now... (laughs) <laughs> a long time ago. A long time ago, but no. <laughs> so I I believe AMC had greenlit straight to series, which I think this was their first straight... To, I might be wrong, but this might have been their first straight to series. They don't do many, sir. Because they do the uh, mini room model. Um, so they went straight to series. I remember I got the script around Thanksgiving. I mean, this must be 2015. And the pilot episode that Dave had written... I did not know Dave before. I read the pilot episode. I had not read Dan Simmons' book. And I remember calling um, my reps and saying, I want to meet Dave. Because the pilot, in a show like this, with such easily sensationalized material, it's so easy to overpoke it. And Dave baked it with such restraint, but it made me so much more tense reading it. I remember feeling physically very tense reading the pilot. And... I figured, oh, this person is going to be a horrible, mean, nasty figure because he's too good of a writer. And then we met at a cafe on Wilshire, and he's just this lovely human being. Well, we, I mean, the first things you wanted to talk about were character and restraint. And so I knew within three minutes this was probably going to be the match sort of that the show needed. Um, And, you know, as it turns out, our taste and our sensibility... um, is a lot more um, discreet and maybe a little bit more, um, uh, res- you know, restrained than a show like this would ne- would intuitively sort of suggest. So I just felt like we were going to have a lot of fun yeah. collaborating together on building this show out in a way that would be the kind of television we'd want to watch. You know, that's not just driven by jump scares and sort of stings in the score, and we, we don't have any of that in the yeah. show. Well, but there is, I mean... In watching the first few episodes, there's this really interesting tone that's struck because the material, as you say, could lend itself to a sort of schlocky version, right? A sort of cheap scares version. Um, But we have to live with these characters. We have to get to know these characters. So I'm curious about the conversations you guys had about the right tone and where... I mean, it's a show called The Terror also. (laughs) So it has to be scary and, and where that comes from. I think we approached it as first when we talked about our favorite films, and even though we loved horror, the films that we and the books that we actually used as a model for this show were not, not very few of them are horror. Mm-hmm. You know, we loved, we're, we both love pretentious European filmmaking. <laughs> uh, but, what, what kind of stuff do you talk about? Uh, I mean, uh, Ken Russell's The Devils, Peter Weir's Picnic yeah. at Hanging Rock. I mean, these were yeah. the films we screened in the writer's room, and yeah. Yeah, and just. So then what, it, what we realized early on is let's, this isn't 
necessarily a horror story. In fact, there's sci-fi elements to it. There's Western elements to it. There's that ghost story elements to it. And once we realized the foundations of the story was actually more, broad, you know, more expansive than just a horror story, it really freed us to, to play with tone and play with pacing. I mean, sci-fi is just an interesting example in Westerns because the first acts are much slower draw-ins in those genres. Um, and then that was really freeing for us. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, I'm curious, too, and I just want to backtrack a little bit, but uh, Sue, as you're reading his terrific pilot script, yes. uh, you're coming off of network shows primarily, and you have to read something like this and say, how do we do this <laughs> on a budget, right? I mean, you're, you're the one with a lot of TV experience, uh, and... You know, you have to get the, the, the ships moving. You have to get uh, everything working on budget, on time. Do you read this and think, oh, my God, how do we get this done? Well, Dave and I had an interesting experience where, I mean, we're at this very strange moment in television mm-hmm. where television is neither television nor features in some ways. Um, the budgets are getting bigger for these shows. I mean, this show, Dave's been on it for 10 to 12 years, but in terms of the actual making of it, it's almost too two and a half years, that's, fe- that's a feature timeline. Um, and with the amount of VFX a show like this would require, I think, you know, not to mince words, Dave and I, but budget was a huge concern of this show. I mean, if there was one point, we'll air some laundry, not dirty laundry, <laughs> but air some laundry, but there was a point before we went into production where we did not think this show was going to get made. Um, and, and was it just there's no money to make this the way it ought to be made? Well, it's it, this kind of show was sort of uncharted territory for AMC. They hadn't yeah. done a show this big, and they'd certainly never done a show that's mm-hmm. this VFX intensive. And so it was it, it was a learning process sort of for all of us. I mean, we, we, we did use some pre-existing models from something like The Martian, you know, Ridley, that we used a lot of his sort of same techniques and collaborators. And and it, it just takes a little while to sort of break out an actual budget rather than the one you hope sort of it will come under. Um, and so it was just a learning process for all of us, um, just getting our head around mm-hmm. even simple things like breath. Is that refrigerated stages? Is that digital breath? Is that vapor breath? I mean, and each one of those has a different price tag. And, you know, multiply that by 20 other questions, fundamental questions about how we were going to shoot the show that have varying price tags and, you know, takes a minute to figure out what the what the appropriate budget for a show is. Yeah, like and despite is. us saying that it's, you know, we really looked at other horror reference, I mean, non-horror references, we also, this is a show with huge set pieces. I mean, I think there's six major set pieces in this show. For one season, for ten episodes to have those six set pieces was a tremendous, I mean, but creatively, we along with AMC knew the show had to have those. Not only are there spectacles, but they really do advance our characters' stories. But they're also all different. They're different, We couldn't yeah. take insights from one and carry them to the next yeah. because producing them was an entirely different affair each time. That's really yeah. interesting. So did, I mean, these are sort of production questions, right? Did these kind of questions and these parameters that you knew you would inevitably run into present themselves in the writer's room when you guys were breaking the story? Only when we we did a sort of a season pitch out did we let the question of producibility come into the room. Um, and you know, we certainly did quite a lot of adjustment um, between you know, pitching it out in the writer's room and the day we shot every scene. Um, but we... Because we, 
you know, we ran the writer's room from the point of view of always making sure character was driving the story. Uh, actually, you know, at the end of the day, the amount we had to remove to make the show producible was a lot less than you might think because we spent our time and our effort and our energy on, on character stories. And when those converged into set pieces, we knew what amount of that we could sustainably have, kind of whatever the budget of the show was going to be. You know, we had our wish list of extra things we wanted beyond that. But but in the writer's room, we didn't let our, we didn't let ourselves engage too much with the question of producibility. Yeah. And I think to AMC's credit, I mean, this this for ten episodes, which is such a serialized story, if you take out one scene. It's a house of cars. A lot. Of the, when, so let's say you took out a scene. We have a lot of characters. If you took out a scene with, for example, then when he dies in episode nine, are you going to care? Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> we get, you know what? We'll take out the name. Yes, we'll thank you. We'll bleep the name. It's so. not that big a spoiler. That's I mean, true. it's generally, you know, you know yeah. where this show's headed. But I mean, that's it's, it's, it's the easiest way to make things cheaper is you cut scenes, right? right. But in the writers' room, when we when we had this, you know, matrix of all the all of our characters and all the scenes, this was not a show that we could have done that. Well, also it should be it should be said that the the nature of this kind of story, where you have a very tight hierarchy at the beginning, and you know who the protagonists of that hierarchy are, it's the captains and the lieutenants. But what happens is in our story, this hierarchy starts to fall apart, and you know, after a certain point, your rank doesn't really matter anymore. And so what we, what we had, and so one of the things I love most about this particular story and the way we got to tell it is characters who are all but invisible in the first three or four episodes become major characters in the back half of the season. And so questions about which scenes to cut become more problematic because in an episode it may seem like this scene is expendable, but then you have to remind yourself that's the introduction to a character who's going to become quite, who's going to become crucial in episode seven, eight, nine, and 10. And so, you know, it meant that we had sort of less flexibility cutting things than maybe another show would have because our protagonists are always being sort of swapped in and out. And we still grieve, by the way. Like, you know, I hear people, writers say afterwards, oh, we cut that scene. You know what? We really didn't need it. We still grieve over it. Mean, we will <laughs> we not give them. it. We still, we just had this conversation this morning. There's this, in the pilot scene, in the pilot, there's this original uh, tag to a scene after Hickey and the uh, digging crew bury one of the characters. Uh, there's a coda to that moment where you see a baby cub eat another cub. And thematically, it would have been so wonderful. That was a huge VFX shot, so of course it's going to be cut. I still grieve over I that. Know, I wish yeah. we had that. Well, they built one cub yeah. before we decided we couldn't afford the other cubs. So there's some, there's some lonely cub waiting to be eaten out there. That, <laughs> or yeah. very hungry. Yeah. <laughs> or very hungry, yeah. Um, you mentioned, and this is, you know, let's, let's talk about the actual breaking of, of these 10 episodes and the room you guys put together. But before that, you mentioned kind of knowing where the story ends up, right? Like, you're putting these characters in an untenable position uh, and, and stranding them. How do you contend with an inevitable ending as you're breaking story and making it feel like it's not inevitable? Well, it's wonderful, actually, to have that kind of... to know what the closure of the, of the movement of the season is going to be because... You know, we had a lot of uh, historical resources mm-hmm. to work with, biographies, letters, things like that, and it became a very interesting puzzle of empathy rather than a plotting to try to figure out, 
knowing what we know about each character and knowing where they end up generally, if not specifically end up in the show, how do you argue backwards to make sort of the, you know, the, the person that we, that we need this character to be at the end of the season match the person whom we meet in the earlier episodes? And that's the only way I can sort of describe it is as a kind of puzzle of empathy. You have to think your way into how to make this grounded emotionally sort of um, reasonable. Um, you know, all of those things that go into good character work anyways was heightened in this show because we did have so much ground to cover and it had to lead in one very specific direction. I mean, we weren't worried. I mean, people say, uh, you know, we've been asked this question of, were you guys worried that, you know, you're gonna, it's, it's hard to stick the landing when you know what the landing is. But between... There's a vast gulf of material to play with in terms of we, we don't know we don't know when each of the characters died in real life. We don't know where they died, per se. We don't, and those, not knowing those things frees us to really take, to explore. And as Dave was saying, our researcher was great. Our researcher was in the writer's room with us. She was yeah. really part, I mean, she was like almost a writer with us in the room. And the reason why that was helpful, because even though we had Dan Simmons' book and we had um, all the research material, is when you put things together and you start talking about characters. For example, remember when we found out that the real-life Blanky was half-Jewish? Yeah. I mean, it's not in the scripts per se, but in terms of plotting out who this character ends up becoming and the kind of death he will end up having, perhaps, um, those little tidbits just grew and grew and grew, and it just became this really interesting way to... So in terms of knowing what the ending was, to us, that was almost like the least interesting part of it. But that said, yeah. if you asked... 10 people who have read the novel and 10 people who haven't, how they think the season will end. I don't know that anyone will actually guess how the season does end. I mean, we were able to pull off something, um, I think, quite interesting at the end of the season, knowing what people's expectations would be. Um, and that was a, you know, that's a fun, um, it's a fun it, it sort of, um, I don't know how to put it, it's a sort of like a one-sided collaboration with an audience that you know is coming is you know what their expectations are going to be, and then you know part of your responsibility is to subvert them in ways that, that deliver actually more insight into character and theme than they're expecting, but just not in the, with the plot points they're expecting. It's a fascinating game. Yeah. And I feel like that's regardless of the project. Sure, absolutely. That's sort of the trick of, yeah. of writing anything. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the nuts and bolts of putting together the room. Um, Sue, as we said, you've been in TV for years. You, you ran the show that you created, The Whispers. Um, did you go to people you had worked with before? How did you start to put this room together, and how big was the room? Well, just one person. So when we interviewed writers for this, when Dave and I interviewed writers for this show, one writer I actually knew from years, Drace Santano Fisher. Uh, he was our writer's assistant on two shows I've worked on. But I actually didn't know him as a writer, so it was such a surprise to read a sample. Now, you had worked with... I'd worked with Danielle as a researcher yes. before, so okay. she was the first person we, we secured because we knew we were going to need that kind of help. Um, I'd worked with Gina Welch before right. on a different on another on a mini room for AMC, uh, and knew that um, you know just knew that her sensibility matched ours. And I mean, one thing we we did from the outset, which is worth mentioning, is we told uh, managers and agents not to send us horror writers. We didn't we didn't want those. We didn't want to risk a lot of bad habits in the room, so we wanted writers who were a bit afraid of this genre or mm -hmm. a bit hesitant about it, um, because we wanted writers who plotted out of character, you know, who understood plot and character as the same thing. 
Uh, and so we got sent all kinds of, you know, we got sent playwrights and sort of novelists. Know, novelists. And, you know, one of the writers we hired, Vinnie Wilhelm, we didn't read a script sample of his, even though he had some to offer. We read an excerpt from his novel. And so we weren't interested in, in the obvious choices in terms of who, who would staff this room. And what were you responding to in the stuff that you guys read? Do you remember specifics uh, that got you excited to get the person in for a meeting? Tone. Yeah. I mean, tone's obviously a big factor in the success of a show like this. But we should also say we did this room very differently from the traditional model, which I think is really, you know, in some ways a credit to why we had such this intimate, really smart room, is in traditional cable and broadcast rooms you hire... You know, in, in a 10-episode season, maybe you might hire five to six writers, and you guys are there for six to eight months. We hired four writers and a researcher for 10 weeks. And what I do think what was helpful for that in this is um, it was a very efficient room in the sense that uh, we, didn't, we didn't have time to go so off script that the show got crazy, if you know what I mean. Like, sometimes when you have six to eight months in a room... <laughs> You're like, you know what, you guys, what if we just blow all this up and not do Dan Simmons of Terror? And what if it's a vampire? <laughs> well, yeah, you can sort of chase down those ideas. Yes, the but there is some, there's a lot of discipline and rigor in this room that I do think, because of it was a historical, because we really also mandated that people understand the times, but then let it go. Um, and we had really smart writers who came from vast backgrounds, as Dave was saying. And 10 weeks might have been too short. It wouldn't have maybe 14, 15, 16 weeks would have been better. But knowing that there was this ticking clock at the end really did help um, just frame the conversation in really precise ways. Yeah, so what did you see as the uh, mandate for the room? What did you expect from the people that you hired? Well, I mean, first of all, we wanted it to be a think tank. You know what I mean? It... it um, we had a very uh, egalitarian room. I mean, we had four writers, a dedicated researcher, the two of us, and we had two sort of... We had a, we had a writer's room assistant, and then we had a personal assistant, mm-hmm. uh, and we had, a, like, a kind of a helper, you know, and everyone could come and sit at the table anytime they could and participate because we doled out the research um, tasks evenly. So everyone had, a, had research they were doing that they were meant to be become experts on, and that included everyone. Uh, and so we had a table that was you know, traditionally meant for six of us, but we often had all ten of us at the table talking through, through, through story problems. And I remember, okay, going back to your question of why we chose certain writers, now this is all coming back to me. Like, oh, wow. Do you remember, we had some writers that we interviewed that we ended up not hiring who were Franklin Expedition fanatics. And you know what, you would think, and I probably on most shows, those were the writers that would have been hired. On this show, we ended up not going in that direction because some of the people who we talked to, who some, and who were, some of them were very strong writers, but we knew they were going to let, they're, they're going to have a hard time letting go. They'd already sort of pre-fetishized the, the, the era and the characters. And yeah. Well, and, yeah. I mean, you mentioned an interesting thing just in passing is have the knowledge, but be able to let it go yeah. and, and sort of let that flavor the characters in the world. But that's yeah. not what this is about. Well, cause, because we are treading in period. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things Dave and I were just really, we really wanted to be cautious about is not to make sure the period was fetishized. Every character in our show should feel like they're living in the most modern world possible. Yeah, and we didn't, and that's one of the distancing effects of period, some period shows that we we don't respond to as much as others are like, wait, these people are acting like they're in a period show. The writing feels like they're in a period show. Why? 
Yeah, and because and because we 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 deprioritized sort of plotting and set pieces and genre stuff in the room. You know, we wanted we knew we were going to need writers who were willing to stay in a space of talking about pure character for weeks before we got to that stuff. And you know, the way we went about it is we started with all of our major characters and we went through the book and decided what what of their arcs in the book we wanted to keep and what we wanted to augment either because we we had done additional research or because we had a different take mm-hmm. on the characters or thematically we wanted them to fit together a bit differently. We went through and beat out character arcs first, side by side, probably 15 or 20 of them. And then we started to take beats from each of their stories and synthesize them into episodes. And that was sort of, that was a tense, not a tense week, it was a, it was a busy week, and it was a, it was a, it, there was some stress to it because we had made our bet that that, that process would work. And when we actually got uh, rough outlines of ten episodes that made clear sense and that inc- that were driven by all these character arcs, that's why I think when the room sort of was, we just sort of relaxed, knowing that we had it kind of in the bag, that it was sure. about elaborating now and deepening it. But mm-hmm. but um, it was a roll of the dice yeah. for a genre show like this to spend the, our first you know three four weeks just walking through character stories. Um, it's, I mean, you, I think you guys know probably instinctively, and I'm sure through practice, is in a genre story. That's that's the stuff that counts, right? We have to love these characters. Yes, absolutely. We have to at least care what happens to them because they're interesting or full people. Sure. Well, well particularly in a show when they're all white, they're all men, they're all wearing hoods <laughs> yeah. and face masks. I mean, you need to feel their differences really yeah. clearly as quickly as possible. Well, what's also interesting when we did the character uh, breakdowns in the room is we realized we had to de-genrify the pilot. So in the original pilot, and, I, and it's a really fantastic ending in the original pilot, but in the original pilot, we see the sh- hints of a creature swimming underneath the ship. That was tactical more tactical, than Tactical, but it's sincere. a great image, yes. I, I want to ask you yes. that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the, there were things in the pilot like that that I knew we were going to take out, that it was about selling the show. But and to AMC's credit, you know, they when we after we were in the room and then we went to them and said you know what now that we know the journeys for all of our characters we don't need this we don't need this and not and actually there's actually a bigger ask we're going to ask of you AMC <laughs> is we also realized that in the first few episodes we don't want our protagonist to be Crozier because hmm. uh, if, if you look watch the pilot who do you think the protagonist is no, absolutely yes and to that you know, to their credit. Yeah, they agreed. They, they agreed. They really, we got a lot of trust from but, AMC. And that's, I mean, it feels to me like, for on AMC side, an evolution of sort of stuff they've done is we can take this character that you're somewhat familiar with and sort of push him to the forefront and follow his story. And, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we saw it with Breaking Bad and now we saw it with mm-hmm. Saul where they can dig in on characters uh, and you can hold off on whatever the genre element is. For you guys, it's horror. For them, it's crime, whatever. Well, we had the benefit of, we've said this a lot, that we, we don't have a zombie behind every tree. And that actually, in one sense, that, um, that means you have, to, you have to deliver something as satisfying on a genre level, um, albeit maybe at a slower pace or a more methodical kind of, um, with a more methodical structure or what, what have you. But, but it also frees, frees you up from the expectation that you're going to fill your show with those things. You know, AMC knew from the outset that this show was going to be full of characters and character moments and character arcs and, and that we were going to sort of find our path through the genre elements um, 
by being subjective to character, and it just made the whole thing a lot well, easier. And arguably, you have you know an element already which adds pressure to the situation, sure. which is the environment, absolutely, the mission, right? Absolutely. So knowing you have that, yeah, sort of a baseline. I mean, what a relief to, to to know right out of the gate that we didn't need twelve thermometer shots in the show. <laughs> that that one even was maybe too much, but it's too much. It's too much fun to pass up. You know, things like that. It's just there in the frame. You don't have to oversell it. But it is crazy. I mean, now that we're able to do the post mortem. It's crazy that we did a show, Dave, a ship show where they're never really sailing, you know, a monster show, and there's really not that many instances of the monster. Very few women, and that's actually an important uh, part of the show and and its criticisms of thematic uh, questions. It's a crazy show. (laughs) But that's what it takes now, right, to, one, break through and to do something that we haven't seen before. Yeah. Throw these elements in. Make the show you want to make. And I assume you guys made the show you want to make. Yes, we yeah. made something we would love to watch. Tonight. I just wish we had that bear scene. <laughs> but I know. Someone will do it with puppets for you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, tack it the super the fan will do it. <laughs> add it yes, back. please. Thank you, Dave please. and I will be so happy. <laughs> was, was this sort of character breakdown that you spent time on in the room, uh, is that different to the way you guys usually work uh, on your own projects or on previous projects? Different only in the sense that in this show there are so many characters. I've never written something that has this many named characters. I think we have 55 named characters. Uh, And and because the hierarchy keeps getting kind of, um, it keeps devolving and people keep coming in in sort of surprising ways, um, it's a different, it was a different process. You know, I've... um, yeah, I would say that I've never had to keep so many character arcs in my head at once. Well, I've, I've never done a based on a true... You did true story, which was based on a true story, but I've never done a based on a true story uh, narrative before. And what's actually fantastic about working a true story is there's certain markers you cannot change, right? We know that the care note was left on this date and this was written. So once events are fixed, or else then you're not telling a true, you know, historical true story, it's just might as well just be a fantasy. But so once we knew that certain things were set, um, but the air around those moments we had the creative freedom with, that was really great. I mean, I want to do just true stories in some ways because <laughs> yeah, I know. it really allows you to be more risk, like having some limitations yeah. actually helped us be a little bit more risk takers than others. Whereas I think, you know, in, my, in the other shows I've worked on where there was no, you could do whatever you wanted. It's frightening. Like, what is going to be the end of, of the whispers, or what is the end of under the dome, or what is? Here, we knew we had some. We knew at least the sh- shadows of the ending, and so then you know what? You can spend more time instead of talking about like, oh, what's the? How are we going to end the show so the audience isn't disappointed? Or the other stuff was more interesting. Well, in a way, it, it just releases you from your own bad habits. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? I well, I, I wrote a feature once for a director who wanted, um, he, was, he was always setting out like formalistic challenges. And mm-hmm. so he said, this is, I want you to write this as five acts. Each one has to be exactly 20 pages. And I said, you know, I can fudge that. I mean, you can play with line lengths and all that. So I appreciate the challenge. But he's like, no, 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 you'll see. The reason I want that is because I want to disrupt your sense of rhythm and see what comes out of that. 
and sort of knowing we had these markers to hit and knowing they had to come in a certain order, it did sort of freeze mm-hmm. some impulses we might have had that maybe wouldn't have been great impulses for the show um, and kind of forced us into an already odd structure for a show. Uh, and, it, and, you know, and we just we had a room full of people who loved that, mm-hmm. who weren't ruffled by that or made insecure by that. It mm-hmm. was actually, it, was, it fed us all in a neat way. Let me ask you guys a plotting question something I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is, given ten episodes, and given this highly serialized story, do you worry about discrete episodes? Do you worry that each episode is its own episode? Uh, and, and how do you sort of start to formulate those? Well, we knew we wanted every episode to feel a bit different from the others, not in, the, not in a kind of conventional sense, but we wanted the show to fall apart. You know, So we talked to the writers, we talked to the directors, we talked to the cinematographers, the editors, everyone, uh, that, that consistency shouldn't be held as a kind of standard for our show. Like if episode 10 feels completely different in terms of how it's paced, edited, how it's shot, it's fine with us. And it's not usually what people are asked to do. So, you know, it takes some convincing that you're being sincere when you say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we found is the, the, the show cycles through so many genres that there was a kind of predominant genre for certain episodes, and we embraced that. For instance, there's an episode in the back half of the season that is absolutely structured like a Western, and people will know immediately, people who love Westerns will know immediately which episode that is. And we leaned into that because we thought that's one way of giving this very serialized show kind of episodes that feel... Um, distinct, you know, that feel like they have an identity. And I don't think, we, you and I, we didn't feel any pressure, you and I didn't feel any anxiety about making sure each film felt like a standalone. I mean, I think we, we, we wanted each episode, but, you know, I think some other shows have more of the burden of making sure that they can watch that one episode and it stands on its own. We are a very oh, serialized yeah, we didn't, we didn't show. Think about that. Yeah, and what's actually, in fact, more than each, we, narratively, we thought about it. So in episode three, there's a natural marker that happens that ends what we call act one. Mm-hmm. So one, two, and three. And great, what's great is we also had our director split match the break. And then episode seven, when the audience sees that episode, they'll understand why that's. Another break break that ushers in the last act. Um, And that was intuitive. So more than episodes, I feel like there's movements in our show. um, That are bigger than episodes. Yeah. That can kind of bear that burden. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we are a very... And we, we, we... are proud of it. We embraced it. We're a very serialized show. Episode 7 is not going to make any sense to you if you haven't watched... But it's also a show that's not... Like, it's not coming out on Netflix. People aren't going to be able to watch it all at once, right? It is coming out week to week. Not at first. And I wonder... (laughs) Not at first, sure. And that's why I asked the question. I'm I'm glad... Like cliffhanger? Do you have to have something? I'm glad that we're actually not... Aren't you glad that we're not binge-watching? We are so out of that that mind frame I didn't even understand your question when you asked it like we did not give a damn about that yeah that's interesting yeah it was it's it's a hell of a lot of fun actually well and there's there's fun to you know getting to revisit it and talk about it in the intervening week and wonder what's happening yeah have that built up I think people are coming back to that um let me just ask uh as we start to wrap up what are the and you've touched on this already but what are the joys specific to writing this show well, the, the big one, obviously, is you, know, you, you rarely get to take characters so far down a road as we got to take these characters. And you know, watching 
I recently had the opportunity to watch one and ten back to back, and it's 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 pretty amazing how far these characters come, and just being the stewards of that, it's really kind of a dream come true to have a a, a, a situation, a story that is that has so much uh, incident and so much sort of move psychological movement that the characters can become you know you can sort of whittle them down to their sort of truest forms by the end of the show and it's just you don't get that chance very often that was a joy I mean I think the biggest joy in addition to meeting Dave and feeling like you know just so grateful that we had an amazing amazing partnership the gap between what is written and what you see that gap is usually wide just because of the limitations of time or budget I mean, I'm so proud to say for us, Dave and I, in this show, that gap between what is written and what we see is much narrower. That band is narrower. It's because we had incredible actors who really understood the words and really felt them. And then we had incredible artists and collaborators who, you know, really put so much thought into building out this world, whether it's costumes or production design or VFX. Just seeing our show and being like, that's pretty close, close to, to what, what we, what we had, imagined. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't happen. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. And we can count on, I mean, I can count on one hand the things that I, I would go back and change. Yeah. That's remarkable. Yeah. I mean, to get that yeah. many, that much of what you wanted to get, it's yeah. incredible. That's yeah. really cool. And I think people are going to respond. I mean, I think people see that on the screen, so. the, so. the passion on the page. You yeah. know what I mean? Um, let me ask you guys before we wrap up. Uh, so March 26th mm-hmm. is the premiere uh, people should check it out. Ten episodes. That's so little commitment. <laughs> uh, but people will really dig it. Uh, let me ask you guys what you are watching on television these days. What is getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your collaborators, your loved ones, etc.? I don't think I've turned on television <laughs> since we got back. I have not watched television. Um, what are you doing that is not work? <laughs> Uh, that's you, another great question. How are you filling your brain? I went to Patagonia and sat on a beach with a penguin colony. That's what, what? I did after I got back from post. And I, they are so unimpressed with humanity. It's fantastic. <laughs> they could not care less. Uh, I've been catching, just because Dave and I have not had any time to do anything for the last few years, I've been just catching up. I've just read uh, two books that blew my mind and now the Homo Deus and Sapiens by Yuval Harari yeah, and right. my brain is just in terms of wow we are so meaningless in this world <laughs> um, between the penguins and yeah. the sapiens yeah, it's your, yeah, the, the, yeah. <laughs> uh, well thank you guys so much for taking the time to chat now leaving nerdist.com